Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who are a part of Door of Hope, welcome back to our continuing study in the writings of this great prophet named Micah. And if maybe you're new to Door of Hope or maybe you're stumbling across this video on the internet, welcome to you as well. My name is Josh. I am one of the pastors here at Door of Hope. And um, just a bit of recap for those of you who are new or perhaps you've been around, but it's a little rusty. It's been a week since you've heard anything on Micah, unless you've been extra diligent and, and have been meditating on this text, and I hope that you have. But a little bit of recap on the last, the last few weeks. And in chapter 5, Micah talks about this shepherd who will, who will come out of Bethlehem and will shepherd his people in righteousness and faithfulness and in peace. And for us today, we say, that sounds awful Christmassy, and it is. But in Micah's time, the Christmas event hadn't happened yet, um, so he was looking forward to it. But he also says in chapter 5, and Ian talks about this in the sermon from a few weeks ago, so you can go back and review it if you would like. But before the shepherd is going to come, God is going to purify his people by cutting them off from the various things that they have put their, tra put their trust in, put their faith in to get them through in life. And some of those things are the, are the named local deities of that time, like Asherah and Baal and, and Moloch, but there are also these sort of unnamed deities that we here today even struggle with, like power and might and, and military strength. God is going to cut away from them all these false gods, all these, all these idols that they put their trust in. And then in chapter 6, Cameron took us through that last week, so you can once again review that one. In chapter 6, Micah has this courtroom metaphor that he uses, and, and he, he calls on the trees and the mountains and the hills and says, come, bear, bear witness to what is happening here. And God essentially says to his people, hey, how have I, how have I mistreated you? What have I done to you? Have I not brought you out of Egypt and brought you through the wilderness and provided for you and given you a land and given you abundance? And the people respond to God by saying, well, well what, do you, what do you want from us? I mean, we've given you sacrifices. We have, we have followed the, the temple system. And the Lord says, listen, I am interested in far more than that. I'm interested in how you treat one another. And there, there's where you have the very famous verse that says, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and love mercy or love chesed, love, love this, this committed love, and to walk humbly before your God. And the rest of the chapter concludes with a, a series of accusations against Israel where, uh, where God essentially says, this is why judgment is coming, is because you have done these things. So feel free to go back and review those when you get the time. But that brings us up to chapter 7, which is, is where we are today. This will be the last, the last study in Micah. And between 6 and 7, just so you know, there is a, an event that takes place that isn't in the text, and that is that judgment has fallen. Um, it is at least begun. It still may, might be in the middle of it happening, or it may have already happened. Uh, more likely it's already happened, but it doesn't matter either way. Judgment is an extended thing. It's not necessarily a single event that takes an hour and then it's over with. Um, it's, it can certainly be ongoing. 
So that's, that's the context. Go ahead and if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Micah chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in a minute. But uh, one more word on the context is that because judgment has fallen, what this means is that Micah's wor- world, and for everyone in Jerusalem, their world has, in our t- 21st century terms, blown up. Their world has blown up. And this raises the question for us, has your world blown up? And if it, if it has, I'm sorry, Micah has a lot to say to you. And if it hasn't, just wait. <laughs> because if you get what you want, if I get what I want, and we all want to live a, a, what we might call a normal life, which is, you know, 60, 70, uh, 80 years, uh, think about it. If, if I live to be 80 or 90 years old, I am going to live to see probably every single person that I love and my parents and my grandparents' generation, I'm going to see all of them die and fade out of my life and, and leave a hole in who I am. And I'm going to live to see a lot of my peers in my generation. I'm going to see them put in the ground and they're going to leave a gaping hole in my life, and it's going to hurt. And I'm, I'm likely to see, God forbid, my children's generation, maybe even some of my children. I will see them pass out of this life and leave this gaping, uh, searing wound in my life. And that is what awaits all of us. So it's not a matter of if your life blows up, it's a matter of when. So Micah has something to say to us. The Lord has something to say to us through Micah. And the big question is, when this happens, what do you do? Where do you turn? What do you do when life doesn't make sense? When you've had experienced this, this soul-crushing, identity-robbing uh, life event, you might say. What do we do with it? Let's see what Micah does. I will, I, I will read the whole chapter, which is 20 verses, so bear with me. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. As when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait 
for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My enemy, or my eyes will look upon her Now she will be trampled down like mire in the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like the serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is like you, O God, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. So that's that's quite a bit there, Uh, 20, 20 verses. And if that is uh, a bit vague and muddy, don't worry, I'm going to go ahead and work back through it. So he opens, Micah opens this, saying, woe is me, and then he he paints this image of a garden or a vineyard or a a, a field that that, uh, exists after the harvest. And since I know a lot of the people, a lot of you watching this aren't necessarily farmers, what this means is if you were in that agrarian society, if you were a farmer, you put in a lot of work throughout the season and you essentially get one paycheck a year. That's the harvest. You get, you get one big paycheck. Maybe you'll get another one a little bit later. But you put in a lot of work to have that one payday. And when you see it coming, the harvest is ripe. You and all your friends, everyone, you get together and you reap. You you. Pick everything, everything that you can, and it's a time of abundance where you have more than you need and you're stuffing your face and your belly is full and it's a time of joy and celebration for you and the people you love. But after that's over, the, the land is essentially desolate. 
The, the closest thing for you and I to experience here is if you go to Salvi Island in the fall and you go out to the pumpkin patch and you take the hayride out and you, you pick out your pumpkin and then you go over and you go through the corn maze and it's a jolly old time. Go there now. Go to Salvi Island right now and you will see there is no corn maze. There's just a bunch of bent over uh, stalks of corn. Maybe they're even burned at this point. Um, but they're moldy and, and disgusting and broken and, the, and, the, and the, the pumpkins that are left are just smashed and moldy and, and they're just basically goo at this point. So Micah is saying, woe is me, I showed up to the party too late. The party's already happened and I missed it. And what is he talking about in terms of the harvest, the field, the first fruits, the ripe fig that his soul desires that he can't find? Well, that is righteous people. And this is actually a common metaphor throughout the prophets. Um, God will speak of Israel as a vine or as, or as a vineyard or some sort of field. Um, and, and he will talk about planting, planting Israel as, as a vine and then expecting fruit to come out, but then either no fruit comes out or like in, in Isaiah, he talks about wild fruit. So bad fruit is coming out. Uh, it's a common metaphor. And Jesus actually uses this in, I think it's Matthew 21, where he, remember, he curses the fig tree. And when he does that, he's not just hangry and, and mad because there, there isn't any food there. It's not like he just went through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A and they're like, well, yeah, sorry, we're out of chicken. He says, all right, boom. It's not like that at all. What he's doing is he is creating a physical picture. The fig tree is Israel. And Israel has failed to produce the fruit, has failed to produce righteousness. And because it has failed to do so, it, uh, it, is, it is cursed. So that's, that's the image of the fig tree. This image is common in the Old and New Testament. And this is also a, a take on judgment. If you've, if you've read through the prophets and you've read through the images of judgment, very often it will look something like this. Uh, Someone will say, the author will say, the enemies have come in through the gates. They've, they've smashed down the gates. They're tearing down the walls. They've, they've lit the city on fire. The homes are on fire. The women and the children have been carried away and, and the men have been slaughtered and there's blood running through the streets. That's, that's the common image of, of, of when judgment is happening. This is different because there are no enemies here. Micah doesn't say anything about the Babylonians or Assyrians or anybody else, no invaders. Rather, the invasion is from within. The invasion is the removal of righteous people. And likely what has happened, though the righteous people may have died in war or they may have been already deported, very likely they have created a society that has systems of power that actually grind up and destroy any sort of person who uh, is righteous or has integrity. And an, an image of this that I, that I thought of, maybe you have, have seen this movie, maybe you haven't, this is really dating myself, but there's a movie called Training Day with Denzel Washington. And I think it's Ethan Hawke who's, who's a new detective on the force and he comes in and he sees that there's corruption in the police force but he realizes that he is so deeply implicated in it that if he blows the whistle, he's going to destroy his own life. So he essentially has a choice of either becoming 
corrupt like everyone else or, um, or blowing the whistle and blowing up his own life. And societies have a way of doing this, of, of grinding up, of making it impossible to be righteous and also make your way to the top, so to speak, make your way into a position of power. And what does Micah do when this, when this happens, when he says there is no one righteous, that the most righteous person is like a thorn, is like a hedge, is, is, um, is actually some, someone you want to avoid, if you want to avoid a righteous person. That's pretty bad. Um, so what Micah is doing is he is, he's mourning because the social fabric is unraveling. You see what he says here? He, he, he talks about the, you can't trust your friend. You can't trust your, your wife or your kids. Hide your kids, hide your wife, if you remember that viral video. But it, it's worse than that because, because it's your kids, it's your wife, it's your husband. It's the people you should be trusting, the, the most trusted people who live with you. Those are the people that you can't trust. It's, it's truly horrible. And it's, it's so bad. Jesus actually uses this images when he's talking about the end of the world. He, he talks about uh, the, the parents not being able to trust their children and the social fabric unraveling so much that even the home is a place that's supposed to be a place of sufficiency and safety and trust. It becomes a place of betrayal and mistrust and insecurity. So this is truly horrible. And what Micah does is he grieves over it. He grieves. He truly grieves and he laments to God. And that's something telling. I just thought, you know, personally for me, what do we do when we observe the decadence of our society? And to put a finer point on it, I haven't met a whole lot of people who've been super stoked about the latest batch of presidential candidates we've had the, few, the last few elections. But I've also met very few people who are willing to grieve over that fact, including myself. It's a lot easier to just sit back and complain about it and say, man, this sucks. Somebody should do something, <laughs> you know. Do we actually grieve over it? Now, be, be that as it may, that's just a question to throw out there. Micah grieves, and his grief is not a grief that's without hope. It's an actual biblical lament, which, which means that he's, he's saying, oh, I can't believe I've lived to see this day. Lord, help. So it's, it's, it's directed to God. It's not just a grief to get his feelings out. It's directed toward God. And what does he do? He has hope. Here in verse 7, he says, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And I have no doubt that some of you watching this are grieving. It's... It's very likely that some of you, maybe somebody you know, has lost a job in the last year. 2020 has been uh, epic in its, in, in its drama. So I have no doubt that, that maybe some of you have lost a job or know someone who has or lost a home. And uh, there are probably some people who have lost someone that you love. And to add insult to injury, you can't even gather together with those you love to mourn in, in a memorial or a graveside service because uh, the pandemic and the restrictions don't allow you to do so. And that's, that's truly awful. I'm sorry if, if that's you in that situation. But I encourage you to, to give that grief, give that pain 
up to the Lord. Micah's name, we haven't talked much about it, but his name in Hebrew is Mikayah, which means who is like Yahweh. And, and indeed, who is like Yahweh? He's, he's a hearer of the, the afflicted. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So if that's you, take heart. The Lord is near to you. You can put your hope in him. So um, moving back to the text, in verse 8, Micah turns his attention away from, from giving his lament to God and, and turns his, his eyes towards his enemies and says, hey, stop gloating over me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back. And he has this real sort of angry and, and, and vindictive attitude towards his enemies. And we might go, oh my, that's not very godly, you know, because we're very pious and we don't get angry. Um, but, he, but he's angry here. And uh, what's, what's going on is more than anger. By the way, it's okay to be angry. The Bible says be angry, but do not sin. Just don't let, don't let your anger turn into sin. It's another thing you can give to God. Um, but, but Micah is, is doing more than just saying, I'll be back, and, and saying, just you wait to his enemies. He's, he's doing a lot more than that here. Uh, p- part, of, part of understanding this is knowing the background, and, and that's essentially this. Let me give it to you. Um, so in Micah's world, the, the common belief was essentially that if you are conquered, if, if a people group is conquered, that means that their God is either weak or their God is indifferent to their needs, and their God has abandoned them. And that's the prevailing notion that, that Micah is speaking into. So it's very likely that his enemies, his taunters, whoever he is speaking to here, has said something like, oh yeah, what a great God Yahweh is. Who, who is like Yahweh? Leaving his people and letting them get pulled into exile. Isn't that wonderful? So Micah's doing more than just than just being angry because of his enemies, what he's actually doing here is he's confessing. He's confessing to his enemies. And I mean that in two ways. To, to confess, we usually think of that having strictly to do with sin. It's saying, it's admitting what you've done wrong. But really to confess is simply to declare what is true. It means to, to agree with what is true. And so Micah does confess sin, and scholars debate whether or not Micah's voice here in the first 11 verses or so, he's speaking on behalf of of the whole nation, or whether he's speaking as an individual out of his own individual experience. It really really doesn't matter here, Um, but he does say in verse 9, he says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. So either his personal sin or, or the sins of the city, there is a confession, a, a coming to agreement with God. I have done wrong, and that's, that's why this is happening. But also, he has a confession, a, a, a bearing witness to the truth of who God is. He says, of course, you know, because I have sinned against him, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. And then then back here in verse 8, he says, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. So he's he's not just confessing his sin, he's confessing who God is. He's bearing witness to who God is. And and that's essentially the reverse of what his enemies are likely telling him. He's actually saying, it isn't true that God has abandoned us. Actually, because God is, 
is faithful and personally committed to his people, this judgment cannot be because God is indifferent or powerless. It must be because God cares about his people. That's why this judgment has happened. And because God is committed and faithful to his people, that means that judgment isn't the last word. This judgment must mean a purification that will mean a restoration in the long run. So Micah has this confidence, uh, and, so, and he confesses that. Then the third thing in the, in the next section is that Micah remembers. He, he, he's, he turns away from speaking to his enemies, and he starts speaking to Israel. And he tells them about a time to come. And that time looks somewhat similar to what he had talked about in chapter 2, which was, you know, Mount Zion will be exalted and, and people from other nations will stream and they will hear, they will hear the Torah and they will, they will obey. So here he, he speaks again of the walls being built up and people, people coming in from, from Assyria to Egypt, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. They're all, they're all going to come. And then the shepherd once again, the shepherd appears, and that shepherd is going to bring his, his people into a time of abundance. So you actually have a reversal here. The shepherd comes, and it says that he will, he will uh, bring them into the midst of a garden land. So that, that garden from, from uh, verse 1 shows up. But instead of it being after the harvest and there's nothing left, it's, it's an actual garden land of abundance. So, so their fortunes are, are turned so that so that um, the people of Israel, they have a time of abundance. And then the fortunes of their enemies are also reversed. They come and they're licking the dust and they're ashamed of their might. They're ashamed of who, they, uh, who they've been and what they have done. Somehow this, the, the sight of this shepherd, this meek and lowly and peaceful shepherd, bringing his people out and shepherding them, that will, uh, that will bring his enemies to their knees. And Micah, he, he believes this because he remembers what God has done. Look, look again in, in verse 14 where it says, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So he's remembering, he's saying, the days of old, the days when God led his people out of Egypt. He's thinking, the Lord led them through and out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness into their land, and he can lead us through this time of exile. And he builds his confidence on how God has been faithful in the past. And this um, this remembrance so boils over him that he sort of he sort of shouts out in verse 18 he says who is a god like you and 18 through 20 is really just an, an exclamation um, from from meditating on who god is it's an exclamation and uh, a declaration to god of who god is and how wonderful he is so micah gets to a point of of just being in awe of the lord in this, the, the first verse in the section, verse 18, who is a God like you? The commentators uh, sort of debate over whether or not this is a play on Micah's name. Remember, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. Well, this is, this is not exactly the same word. Like I had said, Mikayah in Hebrew means who is like Yahweh. This word in Hebrew, if I can nerd out for a moment, 
This word in Hebrew, well, it's more than one word, but it's mi kamocha el. Um, it's not the same as mi obviously. So there isn't necessarily the textual link there, but I, I believe that the idea is, is the same. And here's why. Micah, in this passage, is speaking directly to God. He can't say, who is like God, you know, as though he's saying it to someone else. He's speaking to God, so he says, who is like you? So he can't use the same word. Either way, Micah is super excited. He says, who is like you, O God, being faithful to your people? And the two things that he brings up in this are that, um, that God keeps his promises and God takes care of the sin problem. And if you remember in Genesis, God made a promise to Abraham that in his seed, in his offspring, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Micah remembers, he remembers that God was faithful to preserve his people through their time in Egypt. He preserved his people, he preserved that seed through the wilderness. He preserved them in their own land and he will preserve them again through this exile. And we know, standing where, where, where we are now, we look back on the promise that God has made to Abraham and the promises that are made even here in Micah, and we can see who that seed is. It's this shepherd. It's Jesus. It's the one who's a babe born in Bethlehem that we're celebrating. And we know that it's, it's Jesus who takes care of the sin problem. You know, in, in real time and space, in his life and death and resurrection, he takes our sin and he tramples it under his feet and he throws our iniquities into the depths of the sea because he doesn't retain his anger, but he delights in steadfast love and he wants to show compassion to us. We see that nowadays, even though Micah didn't at the time. But Micah makes a big deal about sin. He makes a big deal about sin here. And one of the reasons why, likely, is because the temple has been destroyed. They don't have the system. They don't have the way to come to God and have your sin be dealt with. But Micah, once again, he remembers, you made a promise to Abraham. And with Abraham, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't have the law. He didn't have the sacrificial system. So this is why Micah is so excited about God taking care of sin and keeping his promises. And that is exciting. I'm ex obviously, I'm a little worked up about it. Um, I hope you are too. But I know that maybe, maybe some of you aren't. Like if, if you're somebody who, who your life has recently blown up, you're probably not super likely to, to be really stoked on, on this idea of, yay, my sins are forgiven. Like maybe you already knew that before your life blew up. And what you want is a change in circumstances. You want, you want your life circumstances to improve. You want to be better. You want to stop hurting. And that's totally understandable. And I can tell you, I've been there. Boy, howdy, I, I have been there. I have been uh, in that place where your world has blown up and it, it takes all that you have to just put on a brave face and keep it together throughout the day and not just burst into tears all the time throughout the day. And then when you get home, all you can do is throw yourself on the bed and cry and cry and cry and cry until, until nothing comes out anymore. I, I've been there, and I've been there after, I, 
after I came to Jesus, I knew that my sins were forgiven. I know what it's like. But I, I also want, want to say, like, I know it's tough medicine, but, but this is still really good news for you, even if your life has blown up. And one of the reasons why I say that is because Micah has, has sort of, in essence, given us a map. It's not a, it's not a formula um, to, to make your life better, but he's given us a map of things to do, uh, of, of territory we can, we can dwell in by giving our grief to God and truly lamenting and, and by confessing who God is and confessing if, if we have, have gone wrong, by, by remembering remembering what God has done and, and by getting to this point of just standing in awe of Him. Um, but the reality is you're not going to be tempted really to do those things. Like maybe you'll be tempted to grieve, but you're not going to be tempted to, to, be, to be super self-reflective and say, where, where, where are my sins? Lord, I'm going to confess my sins. You're probably not going to be tempted to say, oh, I want to um, confess. I want to declare to everyone just how, how great God has been. Um, I, I'm going to go and I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to remember how faithful he's been. These are, these are not the temptations that you face when your life blows up. I know that they're not necessarily temptations that I face, what you're going to be tempted to, to do is to anesthetize, to, to somehow put some kind of balm on the pain because your life has just been ripped open, your soul is torn open, and you're, you're trying to, to do something to, to cool the, pain, the searing pain of that wound, and you're probably going to anesthetize with things like Netflix, binges and, and maybe antidepressants or new dating apps, meeting new people, um, you know, burying yourself in entertainment and things like that. Or you may have the, the peculiarly American uh, temptation of, of this sort of stoic, um, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to get back on top, I'm going to put all this behind me, and I'm going and, and to f- find a way forward. I'm, I'm going to forge ahead. And we, we have a way of doing this in America. I remember there was a uh, I don't know how long ago, it was probably over 12 years ago, but I remember a speech by former President Obama where he says, hope is not, I'm probably going to butcher this, but he says, hope isn't naive optimism. It's, it's, this, um, it's this like indefatigable belief that the future can be better if we just work for it and fight for it and strive for it. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah, you know, because we're all Americans. We're like, yeah, I, we can do it if we just buck up and, and try hard. So you might be tempted to go that direction too. And I just have to tell you, that will, that will work to an extent. And, and here's what I mean. When I, when I was thinking about this, I thought of the movie Castaway. Sorry I have so many movie illustrations here, but if you remember Castaway with Tom Hanks and his volleyball, Wilson? Wilson! Um, so anyways, Tom Hanks is stranded on a desert island. And what pulls him through is his, he has this dream that he will, he will see his fiance. So he had been separated from, from his fiance and he, he's just hoping beyond hope that he will be able to see her again someday, that they'll be able to have a family and have the life that they dreamed of before he was stranded on the, on the island. And it's that hope, that dream that motivates and drives him to not only survive, but to eventually get off the island and get back home. And as soon as he get ba- gets back home, he finds out that she's married someone else and she has a child she has her own family and the dream that just pulled him through that scrape lets him down 
again. And that's what I mean by doing this might be a way of coping, but it, even when it works, it doesn't. Because everything, every dream we have, even if we get that dream, it's going to let us down. And that's if you get the dream. Sometimes hard work and, and striving and fighting, that is just as likely to court disaster as it is to, to hold it off. You know, back in the movie, in the Castaway movie, Tom Hanks is on the island because he's working and striving so hard in his job that he's working through his holidays and he's missing out on time with his fiance because it's the work hard dream that he's fighting for. That's actually what gets him in the island in the first place. So my point in saying all this is don't, don't be tempted to anesthetize or to take this stoic hard work cowboy up route if your world falls apart because these are going to let you down even if they help you cope. The reality is that if, if, if all God is interested in is helping you cope with the tragedy of this life, then, you could, then this would be a way to go. But God is far more interested in re- the renewal of all things, not in just helping us cope, God isn't just a therapist. God is interested in the renewal of all things, and all things will not be renewed unless you and I are also renewed. And that will not happen if all we try to do is cope with tragedy and not actually cling to God and come to God and let Him transform us through it. See, the reality is this. The real problem is not just our circumstances. Because we were made for a world that's different from this one. We were made for a world without sin. This is why Micah is so excited about God taking care of sin. Because sin is that one thing that separates us from all that is good for us. Sin separates us from the one thing that will give us true fulfillment and wholeness in this life, the one thing that will never leave. It won't fade out due to old age. It won't die out. The one thing, the one thing that we need, that we were made for, and that is Jesus himself. It's relationship with God, intimacy with Jesus. The one thing that separates us is sin, and that's why God has to take care of it in order to show his compassion and his steadfast love. He has to take care of sin for us. And the way he does that for us is, how, is doing it on the cross. And the way that we participate in that is we let him save us instead of trying to save ourselves by bucking up and working really hard for it. So if you're hearing this and you're grieving and your world is blown up, I encourage you, let him be your savior. Dwell in this land of lament where you give your grief to him. Dwell in this land of confession where you see who he is and you declare who God is. 
Dwell in the world of remembrance like Micah and remember what he did in the days of old. And here's where if, if you're hearing this and maybe your world hasn't blown up, here's where it gets really practical for you. Help other people remember. Speak of what God has done in your life personally. And don't assume that you just bring this out when somebody's hurting because guess what? People are hurting all the time and they're hiding it from you. I hide it too. It's, there's, I'm, I'm no better. I'm just saying people hurt and they don't say that they're hurting. Don't underestimate how the stories that we find here in Scripture, how bringing those out into the open and the stories of how God has come through in you, for you in your own life, don't underestimate the impact that those things can have on the people around you, especially if they're hurting. So remember, let's remember together, and, and not just remembering the stories, remember the promises. Remember, uh, um, Micah speaks about the promises, the faithfulness to Abraham. Jesus has made promises. He says, I will be with you always. He says that he will wipe away every tear and death and sin and sorrow will be no more. These are promises that we can believe in just as Micah believed in the promise to Abraham. God was faithful to produce that seed of Abraham that will bless all nations. He will be faithful to not only bring us through when our life blows up, but he will be faithful to bring us to him, to transform us and to renew all things. This is the message that the Lord has for us through Micah today and through the rest of his book. I encourage you, go back, listen to the other ones and, and read through this again. I pray that it's been a blessing to you. I miss you all. I love you. I can't wait to see you. Um, have a blessed week.